0: having communities benefit from it, including elements of circular economy, for example, that creates local suppliers opportunities. The scope one to scope three reporting is also a very strong incentive towards having a better performance. And when you're having a better performance on your climate uh, impact, usually it's very much correlated with your social performance on the ground. So if you do things more locally, you will have a better performance on, on terms of ESG reporting.
2: Hello, my name is Susan McGeechee, head of the BMO Climate Institute. Today, we're in Florida at BMO's annual Global Mining Conference, where I'm joined by Remy Piette, co-founder and senior partner, Emily Advisory. Remy is also a faculty member of HEC Paris in Qatar and the University of Miami, as well as a member of the Devonshire Initiative focused on community relations and social license to operate. At this year's 32nd Global Metals and Mining Conference, the first to add critical minerals as a core theme, there was significant attention on the role of critical minerals in enabling the global energy transition. Along with widespread agreement that the world needs to rapidly expand its supply of feedstock materials to enable economy-wide decarbonization, there was a prevailing concern over accelerating geopolitical competition for access to these minerals. Producing the required level of critical minerals and metals, including cobalt, lithium, copper, and nickel, to meet soaring demand for battery and zero-emitting energy technologies will be a challenge. The shape of the future global production landscape for these materials is still uncertain and will depend on how producing nations manage to stimulate and accelerate investment. As jurisdictions endowed with bountiful mineral reserves... The United States and Canada can leverage clear competitive advantages to be key suppliers of these metals and minerals with well-defined and aligned resource development strategies. We have the finance sector, we have the technical and experience know-how, but there's a wide gap between expected demand for critical feedstock materials and available domestic supply. This means we'll either need to expedite possible projects that are in our pipeline today or fill the gap with imports. This is what we're going to drill down on with Remy. Remy, thanks for joining us today. Perhaps we can start by you just telling us a little bit about yourself and Embley Advisory and how it fits into this urgent global question.
0: Well, thank you very much, Susan. And first of all, thank you for for having me. Always a pleasure to talk to you. Yes, Embley Advisory was initially set up as, a, as an investment hub to uh, channel investment out of the Middle East towards projects in emerging markets especially in the energy and infrastructure sector first and then you know gradually more into the natural resource you know uh, uh, sector also we quickly understood that for a project to be efficient and for investors to actually have a return on on, on their investment you, we had to get you know sorted a series of, of, of above the ground risks and understand them you know clearly have an assessment of, of what those were and, and and ensure a social license to operate of different projects so that means what that means making sure that the projects are actually integrated into a, a a vision of development for the territory inclusive development that actually builds on community relations integrate the right kind of ESG protocols for the project to actually happen and that's why we developed that that very strong expertise on working with communities working with with governments uh, either on community suppliers program on ESG strategy on a series of Uh, understanding how to make sure that the product can move forward and integrate the different partners on the same territory, which will allow, therefore, the product to to move forward. Now we operate across Africa, across Latin America, and and obviously uh, the Middle East with some of our partners being in Europe and North America.
2: Great. You know, I really wanted to focus on that international experience as we compare it to what Canada and the U.S. are doing. I mean... So if I talk about a national resource plan, Australia has implemented such a, a such a development plan that identifies lower and higher risk areas for development so that the lower risk areas with consideration to environmental sensitivities or social license to operate challenges or both, that the predetermined lower risk areas are prioritized in advance of what can be lengthy site-by-site assessments. At the Climate Institute, we mapped out something similar for North America by overlaying development hotspots with critical habitats, as well as community engagement and regulatory challenges. And this type of strategic planning doesn't mean you can't develop in those areas, but only that you're not finding out there is an issue with a critical habitat four years into the permitting process. Overlaying environmental sensitivities, including the, the critical habitat areas, is the easy part. Far more difficult, we found, is to incorporate bespoke community needs into a national resource plan. You know, Remy, you know my views on the value of a national resource development plan. Do you think something like this could work in North America? And, you know, I'm wondering how could we develop such a plan in a way that incorporates the needs of myriad diverse communities, each of which would be impacted by this development in different ways?
0: I mean, you're making a, a, a very interesting point by giving actually the, the example of, of, of Australia. What we have right now is kind of a gap between the capacity to access critical resources for economic development of, of a series of regions, especially in North America, because of a lack of financing, because of lack of support of early exploration projects, and so the clear needs here of, of those critical minerals and, and the lack of, let's say, policy to be able to identify the ones that have, you know, legs to run and can actually be further developed. And those, as we we're mentioning, include obviously a, a, an access, a, a of inclusive development and social license to, to operate. Now, when you're looking at a national strategy for development of those resources, this is uh, much needed to a, a certain level. You know this top-down approach of being able potentially to develop, you know, fast-track, uh, you know, permitting to develop a series of identification of, of the project that make the most sense that have the highest return on on, on investment for the economy, but also for social well-being of, of, of communities. At the same time, you have to couple it with a series of bottom-up approach uh, because even when we see in a series of countries that were quite ambitious in terms of their Top-down national strategy plan, you know, identifying key projects. And Colombia comes to mind as a series also of uh, of ideas in, in in Europe that was that was similar to that. It doesn't mean that you will build and foster the kind of consensus around the project also at the community level. And so that's where you have to get the two different tracks working hands in hands towards towards this. The national, you know, resource development plan identifying, identifying projects, but also providing some kind of clear guidelines towards how to include communities, how to include some ESG elements and factors into the development of the project. And a series of underground work with communities themselves, socializing what mining is, socializing what you know what could be the possibilities for you know a more let's say a holistic development scheme for the territory, moving away from a potential resource curse and, and breaking with this not in my backyard uh, situation that we see uh, you know and, and which is understandable for people living close to the to the to a mining project, but having the capacity to explain them, you know, how they can also benefit from it, how there could be uh, a better integration of projects with other sectors. And, and making sure that these could actually move forward, answering therefore both the need for critical resources, but also the very well understandable position from communities. And so implementing the right ESG here for the project to move forward.
2: Yeah, you mentioned um, not my backyards so and NIMBYism, which is we hear a lot about in North America. What you described, is that really, you know, kind of the, the solution? Do you think it's more of an impediment in, in North America versus other regions or, or is it pretty much the same across the board and, and we can all learn from each other?
0: I mean, this is something which is rather boring in in most jurisdictions, and obviously uh, the needs sometimes for uh, work, economy, development might be more pregnant in, in in emerging markets than it is in in Europe and North America, where you have other opportunities for, for 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 jobs or others, and therefore you know that kind of driver or, or incentive is less obvious in North America. But there is obviously uh, across the globe this 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 tendencies of, of wanting to have kind of general clear guidelines towards let's say security of supplies and, and and climate change mitigation, but as soon as it actually impacts your individual well being or you know being in the vicinity of the project, or, or having this maybe impacting your own economic well-being, obviously these reactions are completely understandable, and they are indeed across the board, and maybe stronger sometimes in in, in North America and Europe. And that's where it it becomes very interesting to see those those the, the answers from the government onto this. I and mean, we've seen a very interesting you know uh, strategies on, on on critical minerals here in the U.S., in Canada, also in the U.K. There are a few others across across the globe in, in Europe, Australia, and so on that actually start to integrate very much. So that question of, of community integration. And, and territorial development. Uh, the Canadian ones especially has a very strong component towards First Nation, which is very well understandable. And, and that's why we start seeing also on on, on series of projects, it's been more the case into more fossil fuels or, or, or projects that I really clearly need to make the case on ESG and, 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 and elements on their inclusion to uh, you know inclusive development. But those structure towards you know, having maybe trust for indigenous communities have them as, as very minority equity partners, but they're actually are part of the project themselves and therefore the kind of proceeds of those projects can help benefit the 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 social well being, the health infrastructure and so on decided by the communities themselves. So that's something that we start seeing obviously in Canada. There's some some elements and some similar, you know, projects around the globe. But there are some good, you know, best case practices that could be learned especially even indigenous industries from 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 uh, you know Ecuador Peru Australia uh, you know there's there's very uh, you know interesting pilot project that can be replicated and thanks to the different strategy that we're seeing in North America it can actually be much more efficient than they are maybe in a, in a, in their country countries of origin so that's where you know probably here when you're looking at the different strategies on critical minerals when you look at the ESG elements and inclusion of communities, you might actually see some, you know, move create a create progress into the near future in North America, specifically because the, the, the framework is clearer now.
2: So I just wanted to widen out these themes a bit to the idea of climate justice. Okay. I, I know, you know, we talk about social justice or environmental justice. At the, at the BMO Climate Institute, we're talking about climate justice, which is really the Ability to leverage this economy-wide shift that we're going to experience in a net zero transition to bring more economic opportunity to different types of communities. Can you you talk a little bit about that? And your work with Devonshire Initiative, I think, focuses on some of those themes. Can you talk about how important the climate justice piece is to the energy transition and the project approval processes and permitting that we're talking about here?
0: Well, on the Charge initiative, it was, you know, one key example of, of how Canada some, sometimes has, has very interesting initiatives to move forward. It's actually been, you know, existing for, for, for several decades now. It's uh, this, this uh, work about having mining companies and First Nations and NGOs talking with each other, in a closed room settings, you know Chatham House uh, rules, so nobody knows what has been. said, who actually has said what, and you feel absolutely more free to discuss your worries and your your objectives, and see also other companies or other communities what were their reaction to. So it's really kind of a this very uh, you know closed door settings, but also that allows a very free kind of conversation. So I mean it's been it's been very efficient in in Canada with a series of different companies that are part of it. You know Kinross was part of it, Yamana, a series of, of others. What we did is actually we, we did the same kind of work in Latin America. We have the ability to speak several languages, you know, Portuguese, French, uh, Espanol, and and others. Obviously, uh, you know, in Africa, the, the more local local uh, languages to be able to and you know integrate some of the views and discuss into this 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 setting where we mediate those different positions. Because a lot of it is it's lack of understanding, a series of fears, a series of of worries, and and needing to have the the trust system and the trust situation where you can actually discuss these and get some answers from from companies or get some. Interaction with with communities that's 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 the Davinci initiative and Canada actually has been quite a leader on those issues. I mentioned you know some clear framework towards sustainable mining. For example, is a very clear ESG protocol which is kind of middle of the ground between companies and and NGOs, communities, desires in terms of, of sustainability of projects. So actually quite well fitted. And you've seen that that kind of framework being adopted by a series of countries. You know Brazil most recently, but before you know Colombia, Argentina, Australia, and others that went into this. That's where I'm saying you know you have those 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 clear framework. Now, when you talk about social justice or, you know, just transition, you know, in the concept of, of, of climate mitigation and, 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 and energy transition, the whole question is to see how to move away from traditional fossil fuel, for example. And it's even more pregnant in, in coal producing or, or coal, uh, you know, using uh, countries and jurisdiction in Africa. It's a gig, big element in terms of looking at just transition for, for communities to be able to move away from traditional fossil fuels and harvest and, and jump onto opportunities with the, the, the energy transition efforts. And so that's where, obviously, you know, the community relations and the elements of climate change is very much linked towards you know being able to have clear paths towards transitioning from one to the next in, in in a just grounding. So having communities benefit from it, including you know elements of circular economy, for example, that creates you know local suppliers opportunities. The scope one to scope three reporting is also a very strong incentive towards having a better performance. And when you're having a better performance. On your climate, uh, you know, impact. Usually, it's very much correlated with your social performance on the ground. So, if you do things more locally, you will have a better performance on in terms of ESG reporting. But a series of other, you know, uh, evolutions are similar to that. The local and working with communities is really much more performant in terms of ESG standards in terms of climate change uh, emissions.
2: I, I agree. I mean, I think there's so much opportunity actually to bring some of these communities on board. And I think some communities have very much benefited and been very active. I wonder if there are other communities or may not be as engaged. And I'm wondering, you know, do you have a strategy to ensure no community is, is left behind?
0: I mean, so for, first of all, and we have to... Uh mentioned that many main companies are doing the, the right thing and, and a good job or at least good intent to, to reaching out to, to, to different communities there are also a series of impact which is harder to quantify uh, sometimes and some communities are just you know for their own decision their own right decide not to engage I mean those are situations that days that's where you know uh, you know having a, a, another partner on the ground can be you know most helpful we're seeing some work that we've done for example in Peru uh, we've done in Mozambique that we've done in different countries especially with you know uh, in, that, in the case of Peru with international uh, Inter-American Development Bank of working directly with you know women communities in across the country to be able to analyze the impact of mining development on, on those communities. So it's not made by the mining sector. It's not made by the development. It's made, you know, in terms of academic, you know, strong studies with the communities themselves. And that allows us to create new links to other communities that were actually outcast, not included into that, 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 that entire process, and be able to provide some sound examples of how sometimes the mining sector can have benefited the, 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 the women empowerment, inclusive development, not far from the mine, and be able then to socialize those results completely and by, you know, on an unbiased basis to the other communities that sometimes don't want to be part of the, of the process. So it's obviously, you know, creating some of the bridges, but the bridge goes both ways. That means also that we need to be able to relay the fears and the, and the preoccupations of the communities that didn't want to be part of a process that have been rejecting for different reasons um, the, the mining development. They are not so much uh, focused on, Global energy transition that demands the development of a you know, so a nickel cobalt mine. And it's not. It's not their main focus. Their main focus is what is the future of the territory, and what is the future for me, my kids, and the vision that we want to have in terms of our own development. So that's where you need to be able to actually move away from the global large discourse to actually work, you know, step by step. On you know creation of value through knowledge sharing through training to different communities, through basically also having a lot of work with anthropologists with different key experts on social sciences to be able to maintain the basis of societal structure in those communities that you know don 't want to be part or are kind of very worried about being part of such a process of modernization or foreign investment, whichever way you want to call it. And so that's why you need to go the extra mile. And then the mining company is usually ill-suited to do so because it is you know, clearly labeled as the mining company and they need to actually pass through real experts on the ground to integrate those different communities and, and those that already integrate in the process to actually have some kind of a mediator or a person in between that they can trust, relay on, pass a worry, pass a concern without feeling that it will be kind of outcast by the, by the mining companies. That's why it's very important sometimes to use the right assets, the right tools, the right allies in those different conversations with the objective down the road of having kind of a holistic, diversified economic and social development in the area of influence of mine.
2: This is, um, it's such an interesting conversation in terms of this is a global issue. So we need these metals and minerals to have this global energy transformation but then we have to get right down at community by community by community to bring them all on board so and you have the same thing on
0: the, on the ESG standards also I mean, those yes. are global ESG standards they are well built and so on but the question and the objective is actually to you know aterrizarlo to to just bring it back on the ground to adapt it without you know cheating away from it but to adapt it to the reality of a specific community uh, so clearly there's there's objective in terms of quantify objectives there's clear KPIs but you need to be able to speak the correct language. You need to be able, you know, to to open the right doors, to be able to explain it and, and localize the impact, and, and and seeing how to move forward on on, on local ground, and, and then report globally those those, those standards and performances.
2: Indeed. Um, so, last question, and I'll t- I'll bring it back up to the big global objective that we we have from your international perspective. Do you feel that the U.S. and Canada? Are on track to building a sufficient consensus to produce the the minerals we need for this transition
0: so, so that, that that was the, the the main topic of our panel a, yesterday. I mean do we have a, a competitive advantage here in North America to be able to to face that energy transition and to be able to 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 have access and 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 produce critical minerals and 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 EV batteries and others? I mean my answer was in terms of the technological know-how in terms of financing capacities. Yes, it's there. Although you, I mean, we should not forget that other countries are doing great efforts. I mean, Saudi Arabia, for example, is investing very large amounts of, of energy and money into that that, that that sphere also. So the U.S. is not by, by all means alone on, on this and on having those strength. The issue is the access to the different resources. There's a lot of, of interesting, you know, uh, critical minerals, resources in Latin America, in Africa, for example, where the objective of the countries is obviously to also build their own industry, to move away from the resource curse and dependency theory of uh, uh, Albert Hirschman 1972 um I mean, but that that's the, the to move away from that dependency from uh, from 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 the first world if I can actually call it this way and so there, there needs to be some kind of a, a better work done in terms of diplomatic uh you know relationship with those countries in terms of building capacities in those countries also and continue having them part of the uh, let's say that the, the the North American attempt at building you know uh, uh, renew, uh, uh, achieving energy transition when it comes to continuing access to resources apart from the uh African and Latin American resources. they are obviously here in North America some some clear possibilities to produce uh, critical minerals. As I said, it was limited by the absence of early entry capital for for early exploration uh, projects, and that's where we need to be very clear in terms of how those uh, minerals can be produced and under which conditions. So that is clarifying, again, the ESG uh, framework in terms of their of the different of projects, socializing the uh, positive externalities and, and, and explaining and mitigating the risk of negative externalities of, of, a, of a mineral production scheme, and also clearly identify those projects that might need to have a fast track, and that means additional support from the government or additional support and, and presentation to the different communities. And with a series of different KPIs, that includes you know, First Nation integration, the case of Canada or, or others, other communities, but also clearly have uh, the objective of build on those uh, projects that have a potential to be part of the of the of the uh, of the transition and link it. With the entire value chain of the critical mineral processing, so that means you know building factory close to the reserves, for example, and being able also to train the local communities to become potentially workers from from the factories or become you know members of the mining uh, mining communities. A, a lot of mining companies already do it well. Uh, sometimes they need to be an understanding that you might want to have allies and, and and third parties to process and facilitate the process more easily, but they understand it. It's easier for large companies than it is for smaller exploration companies because it has a cost. It has to be done quite early in the process to socialize a project, to work on the ESG standard from the get-go, but is absolutely needed both for junior to sell their project eventually and for the mining companies and larger players to actually develop the project and move forward. And in, in their capacity to have those key steps in terms of, as I said, inclusion of project, inclusion of ESG format and norms into the critical mineral development is the source of the success whether or not North America is going to be able to lead the pack towards the energy transition and, and, and be competitive.
2: Thank you so much, Remy. This is Susan McGeechie, and I've been talking to Remy Piet. Thank you, Remy, again for joining our Sustainability Leaders podcast. It was a pleasure to speak with you.
0: It's always a pleasure, Susan. Thank you.
1: Thanks for listening to Sustainability Leaders. This podcast is presented by BMO Financial Group. To access all the resources we discussed in today's episode and to see our other podcasts, visit us at bmo.com forward slash sustainability leaders. You can listen and subscribe free to our show on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider, and we'll greatly appreciate a rating and review and any feedback that you might have. Our show and resources are produced with support from BMO's marketing team and Puddle Creative. Until next time, I'm Michael Torrance. Have a great week.